Good morning. Uh, it was a joy singing with you all this morning. I don't know what happened between last night and this morning, but you all sang so beautifully and loudly and fully this morning. Maybe with last night we were just tired from the travel, but uh, it was a joy to sing with you and um, especially that last song because it fits so perfectly with our text this morning. Uh, we are in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if you want to open that up, we'll read this together. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this um, text that you've assigned us to, to learn from this morning. We ask that you would um, open our eyes to see your truth, open our hearts um, to receive it and, and apply it to our lives. And I pray that you would um, give me clarity um, as, I, as I speak. In the name of uh, your son and his strong name, we ask these things. Amen. In American culture today, our society is obsessed with pursuing our own happiness. It's the you do you movement, right? Uh, and there's an accentuation on caring only about what makes me happy and not really about what makes anybody else happy. They do them, uh, you know, you do you. So I read these quotes recently on a Pinterest character quotes board. Life is not a competition. Find your own happiness and stay there. Never put the key to happiness in someone else's pocket. And with a slightly darker tone, whatever you want to do, do it. There's only so many tomorrows. But probably the one I found most uh, surprising and saddening was this one. It says, don't feel bad for making decisions that upset other people. You're not responsible for their happiness. You're responsible for yours. What a telling slogan for our society. This mindset is fleshed out in our culture with um, Twitter rants, people obsessive about protecting their happiness at all costs, and even to the point where they say horrible things to other people that disagree with them or threaten their happiness. And sometimes we look on in shock at these things. We look at this, this I don't, I'm not on Twitter. Josh is on Twitter, but he shares some of these things with me. I'm like, why are you on Twitter? Just quit it. Um, but they, ha they have these, they say these horrible things to each other, and well, sometimes we look on in shock, like how, how can... How can you go that far? How can you wish harm on someone else because they disagree with you? But I think that some of this mindset has infiltrated um, the church. We have arguments over political differences. We feel disgruntled about someone being asked to be in leadership when, when others are not. Or maybe 
we walk into and out of a Sunday gathering without one thought for the needs or burdens of those around us. In this morning's text, we'll see Paul uh, unpack the very antithesis of, of that mindset. My big idea for this morning is imitate Christ's humility to cultivate Christian unity. Imitate Christ's humility to cultivate Christian unity. And I have three points, and they're alliterated. (laughs) Josh has taught me well. Uh, The first is the hypothesis of our unity. The second is the how of our unity. And then the hope of our unity. So first, the hypothesis. A hypothesis is defined as a proposition set forth as an explanation of some phenomena. So we find Paul here setting forth his proposition for achieving unity. So it's kind of in two halves. The first half is going to be that gratitude for Christ's work in our life will produce unity. So look again at verse 1. Paul starts off with almost a rhetorical question here. He says, if, if there is any encouragement. But Paul doesn't really want to know the answer to this question. He already knows the Christians in Philippi. He loves them dearly. He knows that this is true for them. So he asks this question more as a, an emotional plea. Do you remember the blessings you have in Christ? Remember them, and because of this, express gratitude. And your, the expression of your gratitude will come out in pursuing unity. Be unified in your partnership with other believers. So let your gratitude for these blessings in Christ compel you to pursue unity. So the first half, half, as I said, of his hypothesis was that gratitude for Christ's work will result in unity. And the second half is that our desire to walk worthy of the gospel will, uh, will result in unity as well. So gratitude for what Christ has done and a desire to walk worthy of the gospel. Look at verse 1 again. So, stop right there. Uh, you guys know that nobody starts a, a statement with the word so, right? <laughs> and as Josh, some, in some uh, t- texts, this is translated as therefore. And Josh always says, we have to ask. What's it, what's it there for? Excellent. What's it there for? So uh, we go back. Let's back up to the, the passage right before it and look at verse 27. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, we don't have time to unpack the the whole context of this, this short section here. But Paul is using this exact same language here as he uses in the next section. One mind, one spirit. And he says, what does he say just before he uses that, that call to unity? He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Live worthy of the gospel. How does it look? Unity. One mind, one spirit. So our pursuit of unity is like ground in the soil. We're, we're cultivating, well, just like Jody's illustration yesterday, we're going to grow our unity out of the soil of both gratitude for Christ's work and uh, a desire to walk worthy of the gospel. So that's Paul's hypothesis. We're we're laying the groundwork. Now we're going to look at the how, the how of our unity. Paul has a plan. Look in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So I need your participation. You're going to help me out here, okay? Can you guys list for me what Paul is commanding us to do? What, list the, some of the things that he says. Do not... Okay, good. Selfish ambition. Good. Okay. Um, what does he say not to do first? Oh, right. And he uses a word, look not only. Good. Because we do sometimes need to look to our interests, right? But look not only. So I'm going to use the word only here. You guys can't see this because it's so... I'll move out of the way in a second. Um, only own interests, uh, conceit. So we could use a word to kind of sum up this side, and it would be this side here. Sorry, you can't see. Self, self or, or pride. We'll say pride. Okay? And then on the other side, he says, look, uh, not, do not pursue selfish ambition or conceit, but instead... Others. Excellent. So I'm going to do an arrow, except it doesn't look like one. Um, um, others more significant, humility. We'll put that at the top because that's a good opposite of this other one. Humility. And then what is his uh, own interests? Good. Others' interests. Yes. Excellent. So we kind of have two, it's very awkward to stand right smack in front of the board, but I can't stand beside it either. No, no, we're good. I, I managed. Um, so we have kind of two columns here. We have the, the proud self and then our, our humble self, which is what we're going to strive to achieve, right? So instead of being proud, we want to be humble. Humility. That's Paul's plan for the church, how we're going to seek unity is through humility. But um, when we talk about humility, we often talk about it as like a, a mental thing, right? In, uh, C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So thinking. And Paul, even in this passage, uses the theoretical words like like-minded, have one mind, consider these things that we do all inside our heads, right? We can't really see what it looks like. We have to consider or change our mind about it. So Paul, knowing that it would be difficult for us to, to think about being humble, gives us a beautiful example of what it actually looks like in real life. So now this is the section where we look at the practical humility in Christ's example. So look down at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's Christ's example for us. Let's break this into two halves. We're going to look at verse 6 first and then verse 7. Uh, in verse 6, Paul says, Jesus was God, but he emptied himself and was born into humanity. So we see this juxtaposition of the almighty creator God and then this lowly created human being. 
and it's a striking contrast that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around the significance of. So just to try to, to, to understand it a little bit, it would be like Jeff Bezos. You guys know him? He's the founder and CEO of Amazon. He's worth $140 billion. It would be like Jeff Bezos emptying himself of all of his money, power, influence, fame, and going to live in the country of Niger. It's not Nigeria, but they're neighbors. Um, it's landlocked in Africa. It's mostly Saharan desert, and it tops the UN's report of the, as the world's poorest country. He'd have no staff to take him places, no money to buy food and clothes or anything better than a mud hut. No indoor plumbing, no sewage treatment or sanitary drinking water. Living in a place where he can hope to earn a grand total of $906 in a whole year. What he currently makes in less than three hours. That's a big sacrifice. I wonder what we'd have to offer him to do it for just like one week. And yet Jesus' sacrifice was even greater than that. And he didn't do it for any of his own profit. He emptied himself for someone else's needs, for our needs. Before we were even aware that we had needs, he did this for us. And Paul says, do that for each other. Now look at verse 7. Here Jesus is described as uh, further humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't just die. He allowed men to crucify him. We've all heard in a lot of Easter sermons or even watched um, Jesus films that have portrayed the crucifixion, and so we know it's horrific. But more than just being horrific, crucifixion was so cruel that it was reserved for the very, very least of humans. So not, no normal Jew would have been crucified. Only the slaves. Only, or, or if you had like create, uh, committed treason. Would you, would you be crucified? And they wouldn't even bring it up in polite conversation. They would not talk about it at all. It was that shameful. And this is the way Jesus chose to die. He, he came to earth as a human, but not just a human. He humbled himself even further and died the sla a slave's death. This is what Paul is asking us to imitate. I want you to think about the last time you were annoyed with someone at Trinity. <gasps> Can we do that? Can we admit that? Yes. People are annoying. She, uh, it was probably me, right? It was probably me that you were annoyed at right, most recently. Yes. I, I know. I'm annoying. Um, but what caused your annoyance? Really think about it. Was it because your wants, the things you thought were most important, were not being met? Maybe your rights were at stake. In a previous ministry that Josh and I were part of, um, there was a new pastor that came on staff, and he decided to make some changes pretty quickly to the way the women's ministry operated. And there were a couple of couples in the church that were very upset that, that they were changing the way that things had always been done. And so they, they sat down together and um, had a, a long conversation about it, and um, unfortunately, it did not end in unity. But it could have. If either side had come to the point where they were able to, to just set down their wants, 
then we could have seen a different outcome. If the pastor had decided that maybe his ambition to rework women's ministry could wait a little bit. Or if the members had decided that maybe he has a good point. Maybe we should rework the women's ministry. Maybe it's a good idea. Then they could have come to some sort of agreement that would have contributed to the unity of the church rather than seeing um, a fractured outcome. That shouldn't be the case for us at Trinity. We should be willing to set down our wants, needs, desires long enough to hear from the other side so that we can, in unity and partnership, work our, work our way through those differences. Now, a couple of caveats about this illustration. First, Paul's instruction here is not exclusively to leadership. Um, it, it includes it, but we know, uh, as if you look later in um, Philippians in chapter 4, we find him uh, directing specific instruction to two members of the church, right? Yodia and Syntyche. They were, they were at odds. They were angry with each other, and Paul's compelling the church, please come around and help them, help them find unity. So there were, it's not just for leadership. Second, um, we should not always... There are some things that are worth fighting for. Right? Anything that comes down to the truth of Scripture is something that we should stand up and fight for. Um, that's non-negotiable. That's worth fighting for. But the, it's the other things that we have to consider. Is this, is this uh, a non-negotiable? Or is this something that, that I can give up? But this illustration is helpful in allowing us to see something non-essential come to the level of importance that, that ruined relationships and, and broke up the unity of the church. Um, what about those of you here, though, that say, nah, I don't really get annoyed. I just kind of float along. I keep the peace. I, I saw some of your expressions when I asked, when was the last time you were annoyed with someone at Trinity? Some of you went, <laughs> I'm talking to you now. Okay. <laughs> uh, I have two questions for you. First, what do you do when you hear someone else saying rather ununifying things? around you? Do you ask them to share it with the person that they're offended by instead of you? Do you encourage them to use their words to create unity instead? The way that person feels might be right, but they need to go to the person that, is, that they're struggling with instead of telling someone else. So encourage them to do that. Um, help each other. We need each other in this. Um, second, when you walk through the doors at Trinity or uh, through the doors of your C group's house, are you looking for people to care for? Do you have your antenna up for someone that may need prayer or perhaps just a listening ear? I had a friend a few years back. She's still a friend, but we're, she's not in close proximity to me anymore. But um, she was really, really good at doing this. I had a conversation with her when my oldest, Eden, was very small. She was probably three. And it was just like a normal conversation that we, you've probably had a million of since you've been here. I just shared that suddenly my Eden was um, really, really fearful about going to bed at night. She just had a lot of anxiety, and I wasn't really sure how to help her. Um, we, there was a nightlight in the room. You know, we tried a bunch of things, but um, it was just a normal conversation, and I said, I'm sure it's a phase. We'll get through it. The conversation ended. Um, but a couple of days later, I got an email from her, and it was like, hey, I'm, I'm sending you these songs. And they were all like children's songs, either based on scripture or scripture set to music, that were about fear. 
And she said, I, I think maybe if you created this playlist and played it for your daughter every night at bedtime, then it may help her. I don't know, but it's worth a try. And in that moment, I was like, like that wasn't a significant conversation to me. I mentioned it in passing. And she set aside her worries and her burdens long enough to remember my need and then to follow up and do something about it days later. That's considering others more significant than yourself. All right, we've looked at our motivation, kind of the groundwork for pursuing unity, gratitude for Christ's work, a desire to walk worthy of the gospel. Now we've seen Paul's theory for humility and the practical outworking of humility in Christ's life. And now we get to the really fun part, the hope of our unity. Look at verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the end of all of Christ's humility? He's exalted. The result is that that Jesus has been restored to all of the godly rights he was, he was owed. Those are his rights. He was restored to those, and now all creation knows it and is going to shout about it. God is doing the exalting here. Jesus isn't pulling himself up and saying, look what I've done. Look what I've given, and asking God to exalt him. In recognition of his sacrifice, Jesus is given the honor he is due. It's kind of like Mother's Day. Hopefully, you didn't write your mom a card and buy her a gift because you knew if you didn't, you'd be in big trouble. Hopefully, she's not guilt-tripping you, right? But you send her those, those cards and those sweet words because you know she sacrificed for you. She deserves honor. She deserves to be uh, recognized for that. That's what God's doing here with Jesus uh, in a much bigger way. He's exalting the God-man who willingly became the basis of all humanity for our good. Now, why is this such good news for us? I mean, it's not like people at Trinity are going to notice your humble sacrifice and like throw you a party and everybody's going to say, woo! That'd be kind of fun, but uh, this is good news because that person that you're annoyed with, they're going to be praising Jesus right beside you one day in the end. Both of you will have bowed knees and hearts raised in unison to the glory of God. We will absolutely be unified in heaven. So shouldn't we act like it now? A few quick words of conclusion, uh, but a quick clarifier. Uh, Though there are a million ways you can apply this passage to your home, family, work life, um, and I hope you'll spend time thinking about the ways that you can do that, but in in the passage here, Paul is, is asking us to be humble in the context of a church. So my applications are going to be also in the context of the church. Um, First, meditate on Christ's work. Just as all the planets point all of their attention to the sun and rotate in perfect unison, our collective focus should be on the person and work of Christ. And this will unify our mindset. As you spend time in God's word, meditating on his humble sacrifice for you, it should reorient your focus around the gospel. It's what's most important, 
not my ambitions or desires. Get in the word, just as Jody uh, reminded us last night. And then one thing that I thought of that I thought would be a really easy and natural way um, to do this would be during communion, communion each Sunday. It's a very natural time to focus on the humble sacrifice of Christ, his broken body, his spilt blood. So use that time to, to, to give a quick heart reset. Make me humble like you, Christ. Second, ask the Spirit for help. We're so lulled into thinking about our needs and wants first that it feels almost impossible to transform our thinking. We come by it naturally, right? Even from birth, babies, what are they doing? Screaming for attention. I need something, I need something. My needs, my needs, right? Toddlers throw tantrums because they want your attention. They want the attention of mom and dad from another sibling. It's all in our nature. But it's even further reinforced in our culture, as we read earlier in those quotes. Laura, I wrote, I wrote up here with Laura, and she told me yesterday a story about the PTO at their school and how the women in their PTO are so at each other and, and um, disunified and talking about each other behind each other's backs. Um, we, we naturally tend to that, right? You find yourself in those situations and you're thinking hard about not joining them. <laughs> we need supernatural help from the Spirit to transform our thinking. So ask him to. As you sit in your car before a Trinity gathering, pause and say, Spirit, help me lay down the pursuit of my own needs and instead look hard for the needs of others. Maybe before you write that email or make that phone call to bring someone's failure to their attention, say, Spirit, give me wisdom to know if this is pursuing my wants and desires or if this needs to be said. Give me wisdom. Do I need to have that conversation? Maybe you do. But make way first for the Spirit to show you what Jesus would do in your situation. This is hard. That's why Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, because they were struggling with it too. We need the Spirit's help. Third and last, because pride is in our nature and constantly bombarding us in our culture, we will fail. We will mess up. Uh, just like Jody shared in the screw tape letters, even that tiny success of humility brings pride in our hearts about the humility. Oh, look what I just did. Did you see that? <laughs> Repent. Turn from the sinful failure that, and then keep repenting every time. Repentance is what matters because only repentance brings you back to Jesus. And in Jesus, we find the only hope that we will ever have in life. Because as we saw this morning, he's already been all the humble you will ever need. He's esteemed others' needs higher than his own, more than we ever could. And then at the cross, he gave, up. He gave that to us. He gave us his humility. If you want to make it to the end, still believing, and if we want to magnify the grace of Christ, we and we want to be intriguing to a watching world, we must imitate Christ's humility to build Christian unity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your living word. Thank you that your spirit, through Paul, recorded these thoughts so that we can live in unity with one another and be a beacon of light and hope to this dark world. Jesus, we thank you for the perfect picture of humility that you provide for us. We can see in your life how we should love the believers around us. And even more, you've given that humility to us 
through the cross. Thank you that you've uh, taken your perfectly humble, unifying robes and placed them on our shoulders. We aren't proud in the eyes of the Father, all because of you. Spirit, help us. As we consider Christ's goodness to us, we're eager to pursue unity, and we want to walk worthy of your gospel. But it's hard. We need your help. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.